Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sadman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. This week's co-host is Professor Anessa Kimball, who is professor at the University of Laval, but is actually spending the time this summer not at Laval, but all over Central East Europe. Anessa, welcome back to Battle Rhythm. Thank you, Steve. So what are you doing in Europe besides avoiding the heat waves or trying to avoid heat? Yeah, well, aside from avoiding heat waves, um, I'm actually here because um, the CDSN has sent me here. I am working on a research project on NATO Centers of Excellence. This is related to the fact that Canada will be hosting a NATO Center of Excellence on climate change and security. And so I have a research project where I am here in Central and Eastern Europe doing field work at five different locations, trying to learn more about these centers, how they are established, the types of programs of work they do, how they um, facilitate burden sharing in NATO one way or another, how they you know, reach back and feed back into national policy, all sorts of fascinating questions. And you're getting people to talk to you? Yes. In fact, so today I'm actually sitting in Riga, which is where the NATO Center of Excellence on Strategic Communications um, sits. It was established in 2014. And this is a center of excellence, which is interesting for several reasons, one of which being that it is one of the centers of excellence, which has experienced a significant amount of enlargement and in interest by countries that are not NATO countries. Of course, thinking about Canada's effort to establish a center of excellence on climate change and security, that seems very relevant to mm -hmm. understand how it is that these centers can kind of attract partners that are not European based, but also just their, you know, generally how these centers, you know, contribute to doctrine development policy discussions, public consultations, all of those um, interesting things about NATO. And how many centers of excellence are you going to? This project will take me to five centers of excellence that are in Central and Eastern Europe. And then I'm going to go to the first center of excellence, which is actually in, in Rome. That one is interesting because it was actually established without the foundational legal documents. And the rest of them kind of went through this legalized process, but that one kind of saw the day without, and then everything kind of caught up afterwards. So as somebody that's interested in kind of the legal design of institutions, I found that very interesting. But I selected centers because of their probable link or interactions with the climate change center. So here I'm at strategic communications. I will also visit energy security, military medicine, explosive ordnance disposal, and chemical, radiological, biological, nuclear weapons uh, centers. And so 
you know, the idea is to learn from these established centers. Some of them are nearly two decades old. Some of them like Stratcom is just went through its first review cycle. So it's going into its sixth year and, you know, really try to understand how these centers work on the inside, but also what types of benefits they bring to, you know, the states that might host and lead them, uh, the states that sponsor them, and then simply the states that join as partners. Excellent. So you've been to uh, one you're going to be going to uh, several others and you're going to give uh, feedback to our current one in Canada. That's a lot of work. Yes. Yes, it is. At the end of the day, the products will be a couple briefing papers. I'm going to attempt, if I can actually get access to all of the budget data, to do some um, analyses of burden sharing within budgets across centers, and then um, really kind of think about, you know, where these centers may go in the future in some senses, because as Canada is opening a center of its own, there is a level of kind of, one might say, a recipe, but in terms of the contents of what you put in and stuff like that, it, you know, Canada is going to have, you know, a, a role in collaborating to lead, for example helping to uh, identify which programs of work will be the ones that are going to be adopted and where those fit into kind of the different NATO initiatives on climate change and security. Aside from that, I've also been kind of observer participating in Canada's own uh, defense research and development workshops that are associated with the center. So basically trying to get an idea for who are all of the stakeholders that would probably be coming together at the center and what are some of the programs of work that they might be doing in the context of climate change and security. Well, you mentioned the magic words of burden sharing. So let's talk about the summit. The fickle hands of podcasting gave us a really great opportunity since you are a NATO expert and we had the summit last week. Obviously, we paid a lot of attention to it. So before we get into the specifics, what is your general take on the summit itself? Was it a success? Was it a failure? How'd it go? What are the perceptions you're getting from the folks you're hanging out with in Europe? So as summits go, I think that this was a summit that had attracted a, a substantial level of kind of media attention with anticipation about certain files that were going to be moving forward, right? That there was going to be some sort of decision on Ukraine. And there was a lot of kind of anticipation. And the result was, I think, kind of pretty classical, normal, like NATO summits. We learned some things, some files didn't move as low as far off far along as we thought they we, they would generally revealed information we have a final communique which some people say has stronger language around certain things other things in the communique um, you know for example China does not appear very much at all in the final communique there appears to be a you know there was a focus much more on Russia and I think that that's you know obviously justified given what's going on given the amount of NATO resources that are going towards um, you know countering Russian aggression at the end of the day I would say, you know, I think it was probably a pretty average summit. I wouldn't say that it's one that we're going to, you know, look back in 20 years and say uh, this was, you know, foundationally changing for the alliance. I think Historical. probably the the most important thing that came out of this summit was the go ahead for Sweden, that we will, that Turkey has, you know, kind of acquiesced a bit and said, yes, they will put the, you know, the Swedish membership before its parliament. Although, again, it did, you know, then say, well, this will be in October. And so this was probably not as soon as NATO would have liked. But what that means is functionally as well, the other thing that did not come out of the summit, which would have normally come out of the summit, would, it, would be the new common burden sharing agreement. And so I suspect that that was put a bit on the back table because Sweden and Finland are two countries that would be able to contribute significantly. And so probably most countries do not would not be willing to sign an agreement
it because these agreements are for two year cycles. And so, you know, I think that that, you know, put a little bit of a break on that uh, until, you know, frankly, the Swedes are fully integrated. And then, you know, we'll see what that agreement looks like. I guess one of the things you mentioned points to something that, that, I, that, I, that I harped on, which is it's about expectations. So I thought the summit was a huge success because people didn't expect Sweden to get past the Turkish veto. I didn't expect Ukraine to become welcomed as a member or have any specific membership process. I didn't expect that much language in the communique about China. So the language I saw seemed like there was a fair amount of language, although the French blocked the deployment of a NATO center of something or other. NATO liaison office. NATO liaison office in Japan, which would have been NATO's first significant presence in Asia. So when I look at it, I think that the summit was quite successful because it, it wasn't spent on everybody beating each other up over spending, which was the, sort of the Trump era NATO summits. There was the the big deal about Sweden. I was frustrated about how expectations were misset or misaligned for Ukraine. That's partly Zelensky's fault, but partly just the media was playing this up as a big thing. But let's talk about Sweden. So yes, it's going to take place later, but you know, Erdogan can't change legislative cycles. So what's your take on the news about Sweden? What difference does it make to NATO? Uh, was this a huge surprise? Did you think this was a matter of time? Or did you think that, that Turkey was going to keep this blocked for a long time? What did, what did Turkey get out of it? Well, I mean, think? I think that you know, for sure Erdogan is, you know, he's playing a little bit to his strong suit, which is being a little bit of a thorn in NATO's side. I think it's important to, you know, uh, there was definitely a convergence with the fact that once, you know, uh, Turkey kind of said, okay, we will move forward with Sweden's membership, that the United States then decided it was going to transfer the fighter jets that had been kind of held up in red tape. And so it is, you know, uh, one of the other things that is, you know, there's a 17 point agreement that that came out uh, between uh, Turkey and Sweden. This agreement does various things. One of the things it does is kind of establish counterterrorism units. So they were going to collect collaborate much more closely on counterterrorism. There are vague references to Swedish investment in Turkey from what folks that I've spoken to. Um, and again, when I actually arrived in Europe, I was actually at uh, the Swedish and the the Stockholm Inst International Peace Research Institute for a conference, which was actually co-hosted by the Swedish Foreign Ministry. So I had an opportunity to speak with the Swedes, literally. And you know, the the signal there is that it, the, the Turks expect significant investment from the Swedes. And so we don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but I'm pretty sure we're going to find out in, in a short time what that actually looks like in terms of euros. And I think that you know, at the end of the day, there is a little bit of good faith going on between the two, and you know. We did see a little bit of a, you know, I don't want to say quid pro quo, but Sweden did say that they will now be uh, facilitating and help helping to shepherd Turkey towards its EU accession. If you read the <laughs> agreement, there is language, which is a bit surprising. I'm not sure Sweden would have consented to that language, you know, uh, months ago without this, you know, without this kind of delay going on. And so I think that that's important. Um, yeah, but to be fair, the Swedes could promise to help the, the Turkey into the EU. And that's that's what I would call a pie-press promise, or Mary Poppins would call a pie-press promise. Easily made, easily broken. The Swedes can't get the EU and the, Tur uh, the Turkey into the EU. They don't have the power, nor do they really have the interest or inclination. And the joy of all of that stuff, which Turkey has benefited from for decades, which is once you're in, you're in. So therefore, once Sweden gets into Turkey, it's not clear how much the Swedes have to do to implement their side of these agreements. They can just pretty much spurn Turkey from that point onwards. Well, exactly. You know, the the important part of this in terms for NATO, of course, you know, so Sweden joining, I think that um, clearly, 
you know, it secures that that part there, the, you know, the Nordic swath of the alliance. It changes the, you know, the balance in the Arctic. And so Canada, this is something Canada should definitely care about because the Swedes and the Finns are highly capable in the Arctic. When Sweden enters into NATO, it will, it will, the, the balance of icebreakers will be even between the Russians and the NATO bloc of countries, which is important because Canada, you know, despite having the largest Arctic geography, it has some of the, the most conservative or limited Arctic resources up there and relies a lot on partners. For my part, I have seen in the past six to eight months uh, also a real, real strong uh, efforts by the Nordic countries and the Baltic countries to build stronger relations with Canada, which I think is also quite interesting. I mean, frankly, you know, University Laval, which is in Quebec City, which is, you know, an important city in Canada, but not usually one of the ones that people say, like, you know, a major international city, you know, but actually in the past six months, every single uh, Nordic ambassador to Canada and Baltic ambassador to Canada wow. stopped through Quebec City. Every single one of them, they were interested in the Arctic, talking about the Arctic, mm -hmm. because frankly, University Laval is the only university in Canada that manages over 80 research stations that are active in the Arctic. They're not all um, run by Whitney Lackenbauer? No, Lackenbauer is not with us. No, no, no. I'm we just have teasing. I'm just teasing because he's he's the guy running the the mines uh, network on yeah. Arctic stuff. I mean, and, and so I think that's also interesting is that the and frankly I didn't you know I, once I started working on this climate change I had started to learn more and more about what University Laval has in terms of the Arctic and I didn't even know how impressive or how deep our resources were um, and so I think that it's a little bit interesting that there's almost no interaction in terms with the political science or law people in terms of what our university does in the Arctic but. We are one of the few universities in Canada that has a very large footprint up there one way or another, to the extent that actually we're right now constructing a brand new research station. Very cool. So what Sweden means for Canada and NATO is when I was in Riga last month, part of a trip run by public affairs, of the public affairs branch of d and one of the things we were wondering is whether the Swedes would be joining us because as we expand from a battalion, a battle group, to a brigade, we're going to need more donations. Fourth generation, that is having the troops on the ground is begging us, as Dave and I found when we wrote our book. And so how do we get more contributions? And so we're probably going to lose some of our contributors since they have to do their own framework nation stuff in Slovakia and elsewhere. We need to have other countries contribute. And Sweden, everybody was lying because they haven't made any commitments to NATO yet because they're not a NATO member. And I've been hearing whispers that what's going to happen for us in Latvia is that the Swedes and the Danes are going to rotate. So that we'll always have some Scandinavians with us as part of our new multinational brigade. And that's cool for us because the Danes and the Swedes are on the high end of capability and willingness to do stuff. Whereas the first folks who joined us several years ago, we would put on the uh, least helpful ally list. So well, I think is... it's important to note as well, like mm -hmm. um, in terms when you look at the countries that are participating in each of the, you know, the, the presences there in the EFP, um, Canada actually manages the one that has the most partners, the most languages, but also the most heterogeneity in terms of capabilities and capacities. When you look at almost all of the other ones, variation in terms of what they can bring to the table. And so I think, you know, Canada 
faces some challenges that not all of the other partners face when it's leading this, you know, this brigade. And it's important to note that, you know, frankly, it means that Canada's bringing a very strong leadership to the table, that it's still able to kind of provide that very same thing with, you know, conditions that are very different to most to the other brigades. You put it very kindly about capability variation. I, I speak a little more bluntly. On the Ukraine side of the NATO summit, there's a lot of storm and drang over oh, they're not going to be, you know, are they being invited to join NATO soon? Oh, they're not going to be invited to join NATO. Is this the same thing they were promised in 2008? You've taken a look at the language. Do you think that the assurances about future membership for Ukraine is that this language different better than what they had received earlier or was it just more of the same? In terms of the, you know, the language itself, I don't see that, you know, what was in the, this communique was particularly more committing than the language that it had used pre previously, for example, in Bucharest. What is interesting is that, to me, NATO tried not to tie its hands by, for example, giving a deadline or by saying, okay, Ukraine has to have a membership accession plan. Because mm. those types of things would put NATO a bit on a schedule that I think, frankly, most NATO partners, you know, might not be willing to commit to. Because mm. it's not clear when the violence is going to end there. And obviously, a condition to enter into NATO is that you cannot, you know, your, your borders have to be secure and you can't be have open conflict. And so in some senses, you know, NATO is, is keeping itself to have a level of maneuverability by not giving those commitments with, you know, real strong you know, limits on them. And so this is very strategic. But on the other hand, I can see that, you know, Zelensky is using, can use this very thing um, in his yeah, mediatized public discourse, you know, where he's saying it's absurd, right? Frankly, starting to frustrate. We heard afterwards then that other countries were frustrated with Zelensky's reaction into that. He's not so we are enough, seeing, yes. you know, there's a little bit of friction that's starting to emerge. I'm trying to figure out how much of this is substantive versus how much of this is symbolic stuff to try to just, you know, Zelensky probably knew as he was traveling to Vilnius and was writing mean tweets that there wasn't going to be membership, or at least not a process spelled out in a way that he would have liked. But he was using that strategically. So that way, when he got there, he was able to get other commitments that he that are more important to him. So getting more agreements for the NATO countries that are all working on getting F-16s, on getting the cluster munitions that the United States is, is, is pro has promised them, that there are more material benefits in the short term, because there is no way that, that Ukraine is going to get membership now. And you know, once the war is over, depending how it ends, they'll get in. And if the war is over, it won't matter if it takes two days or or a year or two years to get in, as long as Russia is, is, is you know, not that capable of, of launching a new war in that at a moment. Well, I think the other thing is important to note is that, you know, a lot of times the media, Zelensky and, you know, the pundits are saying, well, I mean, you know, maybe they should just go for the European Union first. And to me, and historically, that would be counter to what all of the other 14 countries that have entered both institutions after the, the end of the Cold War did. And, you know, I'm not sure that there would be much willingness by the European Union to let a Ukrainian if it wasn't in NATO first. And so frankly, you know, the fact that this keeps on coming up to me is people just not really understanding kind of the synergies between these two institutions appropriately. Yeah. Again, I think it was a lot of you know, part of it was the media was playing it up because they were looking for some sort of controversy and they had to make this a big deal. 
And Zelensky gave them some meat with that one tweet. And then the next day, they're like, wait, he's now smiling with Biden. It's like, this is not that hard. Well, I think another thing that was interesting is that uh, I may be wrong, but this may be the first NATO summit where there was actually a G7 communique. I'm not sure about that. But yeah, I mean, they had the G7 together, so... Why not do a twofer, right? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, and, and of course, this is only because Japan was there and these other countries, you know. So, again, it was in, an interesting alignment in some senses that they came out with something that was, frankly, G7 on the sidelines of a NATO summit. Oh, and again, cool. I think that this this suggests that, you know, as scholars, we often kind of, we study NATO, we study EU, we study G7, OSCE. We don't actually study these things in the way that they are indirectly related, but very, very much related behind the scenes for countries. I guess. I think it's also that they're good environmentalists. Why not have two summits you know, at the same time, essentially, to save money and, and, and security fees and flying and all the rest of it? So it's good they did that. Okay, so we had, the, we talked to Ukraine, we talked Sweden. I guess the the question now that you're hanging out in Eastern Europe, there's a lot of people in Canada gnashing their teeth and, and beating themselves up over not spending enough money. I've had my own questions about whether the funding commitment for the troops in Latvia, which was $2.6 billion, but only $1.2 billion in new money, which may or may not be enough for all the infrastructure they need to get Canada to help Latvia provide infrastructure for 3,000 troops, or 2,000 plus 1,000 from other countries. What was your read of of, of the Canadian announcements there? And, and since you were in Europe at the time, what were the reactions of the Europeans you're hanging out with? Yeah. I mean, frankly, the people that I speak to mostly in Central and Eastern you know, Europe, for them, you know, the 2% to them is a target that mostly speaks to the central and eastern militaries you know you know i ask them you know is there any sort of you know canada doesn't meet this what do you think about that and frankly to them it doesn't matter at all you know to the to the people in the central you know they're what is important to the to people living in central and eastern europe is the fact that canada is contributing to the brigade it's pulling its weight there you know i'm in latvia of course i've been talking to all sorts of people to these people it's not even in their mind that canada doesn't spend enough or that Canada is not committed or that Canada is not pulling its weight, you know, because frankly, they see what Canada is doing, uh, especially in Latvia, you know, they see what this is, you know, every day, more or less. To them, you know, they think that that's a bit funny media circus that goes on in North America. And frankly, you know, as they say, if our military was as, as good as Canada's military, even if we were making the whatever, you know, uh, we would be extremely proud and we would be knowing that we're doing our job. And so again, you know, I think Sometimes maybe this is searching for stories to make rather than stories that actually exist. Yeah, I I visited last month, as I said before, and there was an expectation that the Canadians were to keep the promises, or they they had that they were waiting for Canada to make announcements to keep the promises that Trudeau had made previously. And I just don't know right now of the people we t- I talked to, which were folks you know sort of higher up in the chains of command and in Latvia and the Canadian military, the folks working with them whether this is quite what was asked for or whether it falls short. Well, I guess we'll find out in time. Of course, the big debate here is, do we actually have 2,000 troops to send? And the answer is yes. I did a lot of media where people are just asking that basic question. The, the hard part is not sending 2,000. The hard part is keeping them. 
you know, the rotation's going. I would say the going. other thing that is um, at least tier of interest is, you know, Canada has, it, it announced that it's going to work towards having a level of kind of a permanent presence here in Latvia, which I think is excellent, something that I've recommended. And so there is a lot of interest in Latvia in terms of what is this actually going to look like? Um, how extensive will this be? I don't think that there's any belief it's going to be, you know, like a U.S. military base like the U.S. has in Poznan and Poland. But what is a Canada-sized permanent level presence? Mm -hmm. What is this going to look like? And frankly, one of the things that I think is most interesting is, you know, will this commitment permit Canada, for example, to procure arms in Europe and use them here? Because one of the things that Canada pays for, which we really don't talk about in the alliance, is that transatlantic trip. Everything that Canada supplies everywhere has to come across the ocean, and Canada is not as large as the United States, and so there's not necessarily economies of efficiency in transporting all of that stuff. And so again, you know, there's a little bit of, there's a penalty that Canada pays on that that's a little bit stronger than other partners, and so should Canada be able to kind of create ability that could actually help Canada's bottom line and, you know, help Canada to diversify its sources of defense procurement? Yeah, we'll see about that. I mean, the Patricia has always been to buy American, but I do think, you know, basing our tanks, that an early announcement uh, before the summit that Minister Nan made of basing tanks in, in Latvia, that was a significant change of operations. So we don't have to ship it back and forth or ship. But the big question hanging over all this is the personnel crisis, because how do we make the Latvia mission something that is interesting for troops that when it's their second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth rotation. We're not going to do the thing where we just put troops in there for three years, they can bring their families, all that stuff like we did during the Cold War. We just don't have the structure for it. And I guess we don't have the willingness on the part of the government to spend the money to really make the base a special place. So that way you can have families and schools and all that kind of stuff. So the hard part is going to be sustaining this over the long run. But uh, we're going to have to cut this off because we actually have a long interview with Vice Admiral Angus Topsy, the head of the Canadian Navy. Uh, yes, that's it's fascinating. Us. It was a really good conversation. He's really quite open, and we had a very good conversation, and it'll be fun to listen to. So, Anessa, I wish you luck in battling the various bureaucratic battles that you have to fight in order to be wandering through Europe asking questions about centers of excellence where the people there are asking you, why are you talking to me? I'm not. I'm excellent, but I don't think I'm worthy of being talked to. I think uh, I think you're doing a really cool project, and uh, I can't wait to see the results of it. Thanks very much, Steve. And of course, I will keep you and the CDSN apprised of my travels throughout Europe. If all goes well, I will visit 11 NATO partners um, before I leave here at the in December. And so that alone, I think, is pretty interesting that I'm going to have an opportunity in this really short period to go to about a third of NATO countries and mm -hmm. really, you know, come back to Canada with, a with a, a, I think, a very good understanding about, you know, the partners, particularly the CEE partners and the alliance. Because, I mean, face it, a lot of what we do in Canada when we think about NATO is not about those countries, despite the fact that they are now the majority of the alliance. And so this is a good opportunity for us to to understand these countries better and how they contribute. Well, I really appreciate that. And I also appreciate your giving a perspective on how those countries are thinking about Canada, because we in the Ottawa bubble don't really have a clue as to as to how we're being perceived and we end up usually focusing on the worst case scenarios so it'll be good to have you come back and tell us where is canada in europe that is how are they looking at us are we relevant are we irrelevant all that all that kind of good stuff absolutely
Today in Battle Rhythm, we're talking with Vice Admiral Angus Topshi, who is the commander of the Royal Canadian Navy. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Admiral. It's my pleasure. I've been listening to your podcast for a while, so it's. Uh, I'm not sure if I will listen to the episode that I feature on. <laughs> yeah, there's all those uh, actors who say they never watch anything that they've been in, and I, I always find that strange. So the NATO summit is going on right now. So I guess we could start with that, and then we could talk about some other stuff, because uh, most of your attention, I guess, lately has been on the Indo-Pacific, but the, the Navy is still relevant for the Atlantic. What is the Navy currently doing related to the, the war in Ukraine and reassuring our allies in the Baltics? Yeah, so right now we've got His Majesty's Canadian ship Fredericton, one of our Halifax-class frigates, has been deployed with NATO standing maritime groups for, for quite some time now. They're coming back at the end of this month, having completed a six-month deployment. And Shawinigan and Summerside, two of our Kingston-class coastal defense vessels, are just arriving in Europe. Uh, they're going to join the Mine Countermeasure Group, and that's a standing NATO force that's responsible for patrolling and uh, searching for old mines in European waters. And when we de detect them, we render them safe. And that group is also anticipating that uh, when the Ukrainian conflict ends, we know that mines have been deployed in the Black Sea. Mm -hmm. There's an expectation that NATO might be asked to provide assistance in locating and rendering safe uh, all of those mines as well. So that's an ongoing mission. So those, those three ships right now are deployed with NATO. So they're still finding mines from World War II? We are. In fact, it happens fairly regularly. Just a, it's amazing the when you deploy literally hundreds of thousands of mines at the end of the war. Just as we're still finding World War One munitions and World War Two munitions in fields across Europe, uh, occasionally you find uh, old mines and they still contain explosive. Uh, so we've got techniques to make sure that uh, we can render them safe. Excellent. And so that that makes sense about what they're doing. the The frigate, when it's part of a NATO fleet, what does it do? So it conducts exercises with the other the units that are it's with. So it's a small, basically standing naval task group. They will do what we call maritime domain awareness missions. So that's sort of intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance type tasks. They can do response tasks. And they also demonstrate. So they've got a diplomatic mission of just demonstrating alliance cohesion. If, say, for example, there were Russian ships operating in an area, then we might go there just to simply monitor their activities and to make our presence known. But most of the time, they are working part of a series of NATO exercises to make sure that we are ready for whatever might come because the world is a pretty uncertain and increasingly uh, trending towards dangerous place. I guess the Russians haven't been as obnoxious in the Baltics as they've been in the Black Sea. Is that fair to say? Their attention has been pretty focused on the Black Sea. So we've seen less activity in the in the Baltic. You know, it's always difficult to understand what another country, what another Navy is trying to do at sea. So we've always got methods of trying to communicate and clarify our intentions when we're operating in proximity, but mean a lot of challenges around the Black Sea, the Baltic Sea lately. And NATO hasn't been operating in the Black Sea uh, since the Ukrainian conflict began. Okay, well... Uh, let's move on to talk about you for a minute or two, which is how did you get to where you are today? Why did you join the Navy and how have you been managed to be so successful as to rise to the very top of it? Wow. So I didn't join the Navy originally. I joined the Air Force, but it turns out I'm not very good at landing planes. So the Air Force suggested I find a different occupation. My first choice, because all my friends at military college at the time were in the Army, was was the Army. They weren't interested in me because it was the early 90s in the midst of the force reduction plan. So I found myself in the Navy. The first commanding officer of, my, the, of a ship that I was assigned to permanently was Captain Dave Hudock. He's commander of HMCS Winnipeg when I joined it in 1997. And it looked like he had the greatest job in the world. He brought incredible energy incredible positivity. He was a fantastic leader. And over the course of that first period of time on board the ship, 
ship, I just came to realize, look, oh my God, I can't imagine anything better than to, to do that job and to command a ship. And so I, I had the opportunity to do so and uh, I was appointed to command HMCS Algonquin in 2009, remained in command for a year and a half. And then the Navy sent me immediately to Afghanistan as part of the NATO training mission. So I went from commanding an air defense destroyer uh, at sea to assisting in the training of a police force in a landlocked desert. Uh, and that's where I realized that the skills I'd gained in my career were were broadly applicable across a range of things. And there was a lot of interesting work that could be done that wasn't actually uh, commanding ships at sea. And so it sort of got me more interested in that. I went on to command the base in Halifax, where I learned the complexity and the, the wonderful people who worked for us throughout the defense team. Uh, and since then, I've sort of said, look, I'll keep going for as long as it's interesting. I had the chance to work for two years down in Colorado Springs with the Air Force. Uh, so the course of my career, one of the things that benefits I've had is that the opportunity to work in an Army environment that year I spent in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. to work in an Air Force-centric uh, headquarters the two years I spent in Colorado Springs, three years in command of the fleet, reconnected me with sailors. And so... And then I had a year in command of Joint Task Force Pacific to teach me the sort of how we do domestic operations in Canada. So I, I feel as though I've been very fortunate in the career that I've had to this point. And I, but I don't think I, I'm anything special, to be honest. I, I think that really it's a case of I've, I've seized every opportunity the Navy's put in front of me, and I'm, I'm grateful for those opportunities. And you didn't start off being really seasick since you weren't really a, a sea person to begin with? So seasickness is a fascinating... I have certainly been seasick uh, over the course of my career. There were times where I felt it more than uh, others. And We've got excellent medications to manage it. So, <laughs> it, you know, in fact, it rarely is an issue for people these days. Back when I first joined, it was sort of one of those things where, oh, no, if you're seasick, that's a sign of weakness. Now it's like, no, that's actually pretty normal. Most people are seasick. So why don't we take some of the excellent medications that we've got that prevent it and allow you to function perfectly well without the fatigue and other side effects that we used to see? Uh, we'll have to get that prescription for my wife because uh, we went on a cruise a few years ago. And once once we were in the, you know, we went to Alaska from, from Seattle and when we were in the Inland Passage, we had, didn't have any problems when we were on the outward passage. Yeah, so that, uh, <laughs> that part of the Salish Sea, that very northern end of Vancouver Island, as you before you get back inside the Inland Passage, that is the first place I was seasick in the Navy. <laughs> Someone might ask whether you got seasick moving to Ottawa, where you're now, you know, war is politics by the means, so everything you do is political, but not everything you do is, you know, fraught with domestic politics or, or with bureaucracy, bureaucracy in the same way that it is when you're at the top of the chain of command looking down, but you're still enmeshed in, in the Ottawa bubble. So how is your adaptation to, to the Ottawa defense scene work out? Yeah, it's been interesting. I had uh, not had the chance to work in the Carling campus before, and I really enjoy the location we've got out here. I think it's a really nice campus environment. Now that the bulk of the sort of headquarters functions in Ottawa are located out here, there's a great opportunity to collaborate with the other services with the other sort of L1s, so the assistant deputy ministers and places like chief of military personnel, we're all out here for the most part. And you know what? One of the great lessons I learned as a base commander is that uh, while bureaucracy can seem this pernicious, horrible thing, it's made up of all people who are show up to work every day trying to do their best to do their job well. And that when you understand that the inherent motivation of people is not the problem, that sometimes it's it's more the systemic. How when we group together all of this collective desire to do well, does it sometimes add up to process that seems impossible? So most of my time is really spent on trying to you know make sure that we insert the person back into the process. So like, how do we make sure that this is human-centric, that we're really focused on what is the underlying problem that we're trying to address? What are the people involved in this that, that matter? And how do we make sure that we're serving them in all of this? And once you've managed to find a way to put it in those terms, I find that we're actually remarkably good at uh, getting to the right place. So I guess maybe I have a very glass half full toward uh, perspective on things here, but I've enjoyed my time in Ottawa. What was the big surprise when you came here? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think 
really the senior leadership commitment to do things differently. I've been thoroughly impressed by the the team represented by the minister, the deputy minister, and the chief. That sort of group of three at the head of the department is probably the best I've seen at any point in my career. When you can quibble over who was the best minister, DM, or chief, and, and I'm not going to make the case one way or the other there. I'm saying, but collectively, their vision for the department, their determination to, to change process and to make it make sense, tolerate things is genuine. And it was really heartening to find out that that actually was meant. And it's, I felt empowered to get on with making a difference wherever we can. So given that we're in the middle of a personnel crisis, what currently is the number of how many, what's the percentage of sailors you're short? So it's roughly 20%. It's always an interesting question to figure out what the denominator is because our <laughs> establishment's changing a little bit uh, each and every time, but we're about 20% short. And the challenge we face is that it's felt differently in different places. And so just the raw number doesn't really convey the, the challenge. So, and so some of it- certainly it, does. <laughs> One fifth, I thought well, that was convey. Oh, it gets worse, right? So yeah. if you think about how we do our establishment, when we send people off for career courses on on leave, if they go off on maternity leave or parental leave, there's about 9% of our force that's always off on some reason, otherwise unavailable to work. We have that 20% shortage that I mentioned. And then we've got about 20% who are unavailable for medical employment limitations to serve at sea. And that's all people who've just been injured or developed a condition that requires the types of treatment that they can't get at sea. It's not consistently the same people. It's a, it's a rotating mix of people and you can't help it if somebody breaks their hand playing a sport or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly can't sail for a period of time, but that adds up to nearly 50%. And so in the fleet right now, there's a real sense among sailors that they're overworked and overtaxed and they're right because they are typically doing the job of two people, each of them. And now we don't send a ship with, to sea with half the crew it needs. And so what it means is we're constantly cycling people around to fill the shortages as ships go to sea to make sure that we can still get the job of the Navy done, which is putting ships to sea to generate the new sailors to meet the commitments that Canada has at home and abroad. You know, so saying we're 20% short doesn't really translate into the impact on the ground. It's pretty significant um, and we're finding ways to manage. And what's more important is we're trying to make sure that we make conscious and deliberate, sensible choices about what we're not doing because of a lack of capacity and trying really to make sure that we don't do anything we don't absolutely have to do. So what are we not doing that we would ordinarily be doing? So in an ideal world, we would have a frigate deployed nearly continuously with Opry Assurance, but that fourth frigate is now, you know, the third frigate going to what's going to be off horizon shortly as opposed to the former op projection. So one of the things we're not doing is we don't send ships to international fleet reviews of other countries. We're really focused mainly on deploying ships only to Europe and to Indo-Pacific. Mm -hmm. We're cutting back on the other sorts of deployments that don't have a specific force generation or necessary force employment nexus to them. Yes, we really are in a period of reconstitution. Our focus is it's either we're doing operations that have been mandated by government, or we are working on exercises that are about generating the skills and experiences and, and competencies that scalers need to have to be proficient. So in the face of this personnel crisis, what kind of structural or systematic or systemic changes are you making to make the Navy a more pleasant place to work at, um, to, to improve retention at as well as improve recruitment. You know, so our shortage right now is most acute in the sailors with 10 to 15 years of experience. And the best way to rapidly, you know, address that shortage is to make sure that we retain all of those sailors with nine to 14 years of experience. Mm -hmm. And so we're having a conversation that chains, uh, you know, the various different units and the commanding officers, coxswains and executive officers have been told, my expectation is that they're talking to their sailors 
about what they want out of their careers, what what would keep them in the Navy well in advance of any of those sellers making a decision to leave. Because once they come to us and say, yeah, you know what, I've decided I'm going to you know, take advantage of my pension and go seek employment elsewhere, or I've just decided this isn't for me and I'm going to leave, it's generally too late for those sailors. And so we need to have those retention discussions. We need to be listening to sailors as well to make sure that we are hearing them for what they want to do. And what is it that gives them that sense of purpose that drives them to show up for work every day? And most importantly, how do we empower them so that wherever we can, we make their job easier, right? So that we're not hitting them with things that are those, you know, those really annoying tasks, but that, you know, if there is something they have to do, that's not pleasant. We've explained clearly why it has to be done, why it has to be done now and why we need them to do it. But generally it was like where we can avoid doing things that aren't a lot of fun. If they're not necessary, we we stop doing them and we're trying to put people into positions to succeed. So the message of the Navy really is that our people are incredible. There's a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done. And the better we can align people whose skills and talents fit into a spot, they can, they're more likely to perform well, and therefore they're going to perform more productively. And so that's really the goal. And so there's a lot of stuff that we're doing to try and within the training system, how do we accelerate training so that we're getting people through the training schools as quickly as we can so that they get back out in the fleet because navies have historically always learned at sea. We're an on-the-job training organization. You learn your job by performance at sea, being mentored and developed into that next role. There is a schoolhouse component to that, but it only needs to be as the shortest possible time in the schoolhouse as possible. And so we're, we're managing all of those people proactively uh, that we're creating experiences for them, that they're never sitting around waiting for something to happen, that while they, if they have to wait for a training course, they're doing something that will benefit them down the road. They're developing experiences, gaining knowledge, gaining qualifications that will have a value for them and for the Navy down the road. So there's been a lot that's been put in place to better manage that side of the personnel thing. And then the honest truth is that, you know, we can't afford not to be managing our personnel as efficiently and effectively as possible. So we've devoted a lot more attention and resources to doing that. Well, one of the challenges of being in a personal crunches, you got to keep on putting people into, into, into important spots. And in your discussion of your career, you mentioned living all over the, the country and all over the world. And uh, your bio mentions that you have a wife and four daughters. I've met one of them and she's terrific. But how do we keep people in the military if we're moving families East Coast to West Coast? Are you, are you thinking about ways of, of having, you know, most people who are in the West stay in the West, most people in the East stay in the East, so that way they don't have to deal with moving and the you know, inflated cost of housing and all the rest of it, that, you know, one of the differences between now and 40 years ago is that now officers have spouses who have careers that are not as mobile. Maybe working from home means that that's not as much of an issue as it was a few years ago, but still moving is stressful, costly. Are you doing things to manage or mitigate the moving problem? Yeah, we are. So we're trying to make sure that we, when we move people, that we don't move them. The number of times I moved, you know, twice within a year as we did things. Now, now some of those are family choices. So I got, I went to Toronto to do the national securities program. That's a one-year assignment and I wasn't going to stay in Toronto at the end. We made the decision as a family that we'd all go together and, and do the move because we thought all of us would benefit from the experience of living in Toronto. But that meant my wife retired from the military at that point because we knew we were going to move twice in a year and it didn't make sense. So she could focus on the family at that point. We were able to make that decision not all families can. And so what we want to do is make sure we offer the option for someone who needs to go to that experience. Can we send them there on their own? It's called an imposed restriction. Uh, how do we make that work for the family so that that's an option? Or how do we make sure that if we send someone there that, you know, can we leave them there with the family for a couple more years? Or maybe we delay it a year so that it works better from the family point of view. So a lot of it has it comes down to a conversation. But overall, one of the first things we're trying to do is reduce the, the number of moves to try and step back and look at the entire sort of posting plot uh, where we're going to deploy our people and see if there's ways that we can minimize the, the number of times people move around. But one of the challenges with the Navy is that the job in Ottawa 
is different from the job on the coast. And there's real value that comes with the experience of, of being in Ottawa and understanding how the headquarters function works. You know, and there are people who want to come here. There are people who want to go back to the coast. And so there are, are always a number of people who are interested in moving. And we owe it to them to make that process as efficient, as effective, as cost neutral as possible. And, and we're failing on that one right now, to be honest. The supports we provide in place for people moving are not adequate and we need to address those. Speaking of moving around, you spent a fair amount of time with Arctic-centric stuff. How do you think climate change is going to change naval operations in and near the Arctic in the next 10, 15 years? Yeah, we're, we're already seeing the change. It's much harder to predict, predict ice conditions. We're seeing storms of the type that we hadn't seen up there before. We're seeing uh, when Harry DeWolf went through the Northwest Passage mm. two years ago, they were talking to the local First Nations and learning that they were seeing fish that they'd never seen before up in the high north. So if, there will be periods where we will probably see no ice in the summer, and it's possible um, before too long. In fact, it's a terrifying possibility that we'll see ice-free summers in the Arctic. That would be a profound impact, but it won't change the fact that even in that scenario, we will still it will still be very icy, very cold, very dark in the midst of winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other challenge for Canada is that the way the Arctic gyre brings, you know, this counterclockwise circulation is that what ice there is, is always accumulating against the western edge of the Canadian archipelago, which creates, a, again, that uncertainty. And so the Northwest Passage will probably be the, the last of the shipping routes in the north to really become ice-free in any sense. It will always be difficult and dangerous to, to traverse. So we're seeing profound impacts of climate change, but it's not like all of a sudden it's going to look like, you know, Lake Ontario in the summer. And one of the topics that comes around often is how much the Russians are investing in their Arctic. Is that something that bothers you or is it something that you take with a grain of salt because you know that they have their own Arctic to defend and they don't really have the ability to, to make trouble for us that, that much on our side? Yeah, I mean, I think it's with many things. If I build up a massive military force, am I doing it so I can attack you or the so I can defend myself against you? And the answer is almost always a bit of both, really. So the first thing to know is the Canadian Arctic is pretty unique. We have the most sparsely populated Arctic of all of the eight Arctic nations. The Russians have 20, over 20% of their GDP comes from the Arctic. So it's not surprising that they've got substantial investments up there. And if you look at the, you know, the threats from the Russian perspective, it would make sense that they build up a robust military capacity up there to make sure they can protect it. That can also be a base for offensive operations. And so it's, what do we read into their intent? And I think the war in Ukraine signals that we should be very cautious about assuming a purely defensive intent. But it is still a long way across the the North Pole and the Arctic Ocean to get to Canada. We don't anticipate that we would be fighting in the Arctic over the Arctic. It's more of a uh, of a theater that we see people fighting through. And so that's the sort of the perspective that NORAD has taken is how do we defend the Arctic uh, in the sense of as a potential theater where we would be fighting a threat uh, to North America. It's unlikely that there would be a threat to the North itself mm-hmm. directly. But obviously, you know, it's a matter of how do you provide comprehensive defense up there? And the most important thing we have to do is we need to assure Canadians that we are continuing to reinforce our sovereignty across the Arctic, that we provide security for all Canadians up there. And so that's the types of mission that we are really pleased to have the Harry DeWolf class of Arctic and offshore patrol ships. They do them extremely well as part of a a really a whole of government, a whole of society effort to ensure that Arctic sovereignty. Well, that means we've got one set of oceans left to talk about, which is the Pacific is vast. The populations there are huge. The Chinese Navy is is now the biggest Navy in the world. How can we make much of a difference or, or, or when we show up at, with our a couple of frigates or a couple of planes in the Pacific? How do we make the Indo-Pacific strategy be something that not only that we talk about in Ottawa, but it's something that is perceived and felt in, in Asia, in, in the Pacific, where they're asking for more Canada, or at least they're wondering where Canada is? 
Yeah, so there's um, there's been a really positive response from other heads of Navy to the Canadian Indo-Pacific strategy. In fact, I was pleasantly surprised by how many of them took note of it and in particular <laughs> cited the fact that it came with money. Um, and we've already made it tangible. I mean, HMCS Montreal, one of our Halifax-class frigates based in Halifax, is right now in the Indo-Pacific. That's the first time we've deployed an East Coast ship into Indo-Pacific. And sure, in the face of the numbers of ships in the People's Liberation Army Navy and the U.S. Navy, our three frigates may not seem like much. But what it matters is it sends a very clear signal when we send our ships through the Taiwan Strait or operate in the South China Sea and in waters where China's made excessive maritime claims, we're sending a signal that Canada does not support the perspective that China has taken, that we're yet another nation that's lined up to say, look, there's a rules-based international order and you need to follow the rules. And we're we're committed to working with you peacefully as long as you agree that these rules apply to all. And so our frigates are a tangible commitment there. The other interesting thing about the Indo-Pacific strategy, and it brings it back to climate change, the piece that I, I don't know that everybody's read into it is... A lot of people in the Indo-Pacific, a lot of countries in the Indo-Pacific are very focused on the potential, you know, threat from China. When you talk to smaller nations, especially in the, you know, South Pacific Ocean or the Indian Ocean, they're not worried about China. They're more worried about climate acidification of the ocean and the loss of, of fish stocks, protein from the ocean. So, you know, that's an existential threat for all of them. The Indo-Pacific strategy talks about making sure that we that we work in fisheries in concert with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and where it makes sense to the Canadian Coast Guard and our allied Coast Guards and navies around the world. And so I see real potential there for us taking on some of the roles that would fit within that strategy that would work to work with those small countries to make sure that we're addressing that part of the security spectrums. It's not always about wars. It's really about all aspects of human and security that we need to make sure that we're we're out there with an ear to the ground and a good understanding of how can we help make a difference where we, you know where we've got the capacity to do so. Well, it's pretty clear that the frigates sailing in the Taiwan Strait were getting China's attention. So that 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 was one thing that gets a more attention than just being you know one vessel because there's not that many navies that are that are doing the kind of freedom of navigation operations that Canada is doing along with Americans and Australia. So I think that that was something that certainly is is taking a small number of ships, essentially, and having a bigger impact. Yeah, I mean, I think Canadians should be proud of the fact that we have a small Navy. We've only got uh, 12 frigates, uh, four submarines, 12 coastal defense vessels. You know, increasingly, we're building up to a fleet of six Arctic and offshore patrol ships, uh, enabled also by our one interim oiler, but we're we're globally deployed. We we don't just have a single ocean that we pay attention to. We operate extensively in the Indian, sorry, in the Pacific Ocean, into the Indian Ocean, up in the Arctic every year, throughout the Atlantic Ocean. And we've gone down into the deep reaches of the Southern Hemisphere. You know, we patrol the globe uh, quite proudly and we are capable of sustaining independent operations anywhere in the world as the government of Canada requires. And that's a, a pretty impressive achievement for a, a relatively small Navy like ours. And how does a Halifax ship get to the Pacific? Which way do they Go? goes through the uh, Panama Canal. Uh, okay. Yeah, Panama Canal. We did look at sending it all the way around the world because that's a pretty cool thing for sailors to do. And some of our West Coast ships, when they've gone to Europe, have come back through the Suez Canal and gone around the world. The challenge is that the tyranny of distance, it's really interesting because most Canadians don't appreciate how vast the Pacific Ocean is. Yeah. Uh, if I was asked by government to send a ship to India, it's not a given that it would come from the West Coast because it could actually, if it was the East Coast of India, the West Coast of India would be closer to Halifax. So it really depends on what port in India would they like me to send a ship to because that might decide which one I send because it's it is exactly halfway around the world from us. We've been talking about recruitment and retention and other issues. One of the central focal points of conversation by this minister, by this uh, chief of defense staff has been culture change. And a lot of it's been, you know, directed at the professional conduct and culture command and other organizations. What's your role in all of that? So my job is to make sure that I set the right culture inside the Navy to in the CAF context and the defense team context. You know, and a big part of that is that people are going to 
do dumb things. Bad things are going to happen. That's just the nature of humans. What matters as an organization is how do we react to that? How do we make sure that the first response when something goes wrong is empathetic and human-centric that takes into account the different perspectives and takes a prompt response appropriate to whatever might have happened? I also really believe that we can't just give people a list of things that they're not allowed to do and a whole series of don't do this, don't do that. It's got to, we've got to build a proactive vision of a culture. And so I've been very clear that within the Navy, we're a uh a welcoming organization that is you know, that values diversity and inclusion because it builds our operational effectiveness. And our goal is to put every person in a position to succeed and to reach their full potential. And so how do we go about making that meaningful and real to each person is the challenge for leaders at all levels. And that's what I, I reinforce every time I talk to a commanding officer, a coxswain, or an executive officer. Do you find that the Navy has a harder time with this? Or that you have a, a greater challenge because, to put it bluntly, some of the um, the stars of the scandal were naval officers, senior, very senior naval officers, the chief of defense, former chief of defense staff, former chief of personnel, and um, uh, their accusa the accusations levied against them were were amongst the most severe. No, I mean, I, I don't think that there's the color of the uniform really had very much uh, to do there. I think that we had a pretty consistent problem amongst senior officers of, of all services that I'm comfortable that we've addressed effectively. I actually think the Navy in many respects has an easier job of it because there's a shared hardship that comes with being away from your family at sea. You know, you are literally all contained together in, in a single ship, sharing all of the risks of, of, of being at sea and all of the joys that come with that. And so from our point of view, we've got some real advantages in terms of building a positive culture at the unit level and then, and then translating that in across the Navy. I guess one of the advantages of having a, a relatively small Navy and having you know people live you know six months at a time on a ship is you can really tell perhaps where the problems are. I mean, I, I know in the United States, there are like certain aircraft carriers that were known to be have a dysfunctional cultures. Is that something that you can pick up that certain ships are, are, are doing better and certain ships are doing worse? Or is that something that just because there's so much turnover that there's really one culture, there's not 12 different ship cultures? No, in fact, you can see ships will develop uh, personalities. A lot of the time, the personalities are, you know, related to the, the personality of the commanding officer or the or the coxswain of the ship. But, you know, Calgary has always had, because they've got this unique relationship with the city of Calgary and they all wear Smith-built hats <laughs> uh, once they're posted to the ship, that's, that's always created this real sense of community and unit, you know, in a sort of value in, in Calgary, but other ships have those same relationships. I mean, St. John's feels passionately, you know, the, the tie to their, their namesake city and St. John's Newfoundland. So all ships have different links. I think the number one thing we look to do is how do we make sure that we are validating that the culture is healthy within a unit? And so we have these sea training groups. And so that's a, you know, led by a commanding officer who has already finished their time in command where we've said, yeah, this person was a successful commander. They go back with a team of, of experts that includes a cock. And they spend, you know, when we work a ship up, it's a, a three to four week process that involves, you know, what does the culture look like? The fleet commanders on each coast will go and provide the validation function in the final part of that exercise. And they'll spend three to four days at sea with that ship, making sure that the culture of that ship is what we expect. And, and when it hasn't been, we've made changes. Just one Navy question. What's a coxswain? A coxswain is uh, the equivalent of the regimental sergeant major. So it's the senior enlisted on a ship. We've had more war movies that tell us what a, a, a regimental sergeant major is than what a coxswain is. So. Yeah, I know it's a complicated one. And the other one that's really interesting is that the Navy, we have a command triad, whereas the Army and the Air Force tend to have command teams where it's just the, the CO and the senior enlisted or RSM. For mm -hmm. us, the executive officer is the third part of that triad. And it's part of the nature of shipboard operations. The captain is the ultimate decision-making authority in so many things. The ship literally lives or dies by the, the captain because the simple decisions as to whether or not you alter course to avoid another ship 
to every weapons uh, decision in wartime is falls under the captain's authority. So it's a very centralized thing. XO has to be ready to immediately take command from the captain if anything goes wrong with the captain. And then there's still that senior enlisted role that the coxswain fills. And so how you set the CO up to be effective in that decision-making role and how the XO then runs the entire ship to support the commanding officer enabled by the coxswain, who's the direct voice to the captain. It's a really unique and interesting thing. And it's we even the other services struggle to really understand how that works in the Navy. And it's one of the reasons why the best way to understand the Navy is you need to come to sea with us. And, and not just for the day, you have to spend a couple of nights at sea to really appreciate the rhythm of the ship and how it works as we operate 24-7. Alas, that program where you've had folks riding your ships has been uh, affected by the personnel crisis. So I've been hoping yes. to get to ride one of your ships, but it it, it, it hasn't worked out this far. It, that's one of the unfortunate things that when you asked us what we've stopped doing, that's one of the things that we've stopped doing because of reconstitution. We do a very, very limited number of them now. That makes sense. Uh, of, of the things you have to burn, I think that makes, makes sense to to put that on hold for a while. But since we can't ride on your ships, I, I think we conclude this interview with something that you might forget that is in your bio. He has deployed in ships around the world and has accumulated countless sea stories involving pirates, sharks, terrorists, volcanoes, whales, fires, and all the other things which make life at sea a true adventure. So what is one sea story you can share with us? So I remember being operating in the Gulf of Guinea and coming across what was basically a Newfoundland dory sized boat and going across to it. And it was, you know, just because we were out trolling the waters and trying to get an understanding of it. And this boat was well out of sight of land with no particular shelter and it was run by a grandfather and his grandson and they were out fishing and it was just you know they needed to feed their family and they'd be out for five or six nights if they needed to be to catch enough fish to be able to go back in and, and it was just to me it was amazing that without any of the aids to navigation or the other stuff how hard people were working to create a life for themselves and how important the sea was to that life and in that particular part of the world there's a type of piracy that preys on people like that and so you know it was a sense of yeah there's a reason we're out here trying to get a better sense of what's going on and trying to keep people, you know, how do we help people like that get a better life? And so it was just a really interesting story to see uh, just the lengths people would go to create an existence for themselves. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that we we have romanticized piracy because of all the old movies. One of my favorite movies, Princess Bride. But I guess counter piracy is something that's still a thing that, you know, where are the hotspots for piracy these days? So piracy is different in you know, all sorts of different places. So there's always a low level version of piracy, armed theft, really, in places like around the Strait of Malacca, the islands in that part of the world, also in the Caribbean to a certain extent, that tends to prey on smaller level things. Uh, there's still pirates pi of the Caribbean. Yeah, there's literally pirates of the Caribbean, but uh, more armed robbers of everything else. Because understand too that piracy, it all depends on what how far off land you are when you do it. If it's inside 12 nautical miles, it's actually just armed robbery. <laughs> if you're outside 12 nautical miles and you're on the high seas, it becomes piracy. It's effectively the same crime and just as evil in either case. There's still piracy in the Gulf of Guinea. That's more about an extortion mafia type. Uh, thing by and large. And there's piracy off the Horn of Africa around Somalia still to this day that tries to get after it. But ships have gotten smarter. And so the bigger well-managed ships tend to do quite well that pirates prey on the weakest. And so it's a pernicious problem that we do the best we can to try and attack the hotspots and understand it. And everybody's best off to be vigilant in the parts of the world where it is known to happen. Well, thanks for, for sharing your sea story with us. I, I think you're probably more ribald or more classified ones that, that maybe we'll find out over a beer sometime. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I think the CDSN has underplayed the Navy, mostly because the Navy has not been in Afghanistan. And most of us have had, you know, developed our research and our expertise over Afghanistan or Latvia or, or places that have gotten more attention. And and so we need to think more about the Navy. Next time, maybe I'll ask you my favorite question to ask uh, folks, which is, 
if we can afford only two services, which service would you recommend to be cannibalized for parts for, for and personnel for the other two? But I don't want to get anyone in too much trouble today. So I, uh, this being our first <laughs> podcast, really wow. appreciate All the right. time that you've had with us. Awesome. I appreciate you not pressing me for an answer to that last one. Happy to discuss <laughs> for a beer and maybe we can even do another podcast on it because that fundamentally is one of the questions of defense policy for Canada is that when you have to make difficult choices about where you assign your resources and how do you do things. And the Australians have come up with a really interesting thing in their last strategic defense review where they basically said, we don't need to create a balanced force. We need to have the right force. And that's involving some tough trade-offs. So it's really quite interesting to watch. But uh, thank you for your attention to the Navy. And I, I will say in the chief's defense, he delivered the best explanation of the importance of anti-submarine warfare that I've ever heard from an infantry officer at a conference not that long ago. He's a pretty strong advocate for the Navy. What did he say? Well, he, he did a really good job of explaining uh, the importance of anti-submarine warfare, the capabilities that are required, how to, how to generate those together out of a uh, you know, a, a sea and air fleet. And so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, he is a well-read military thinker across all five domains at this point. So does that make you a Tom Hanks fan that since Tom Hanks is, has moved away from Band of Brothers and has been doing a bunch of Navy movies between Greyhound and uh, Kevin Phillips? I think it's great to see uh, a proper reflection of, of naval service. You know, there are some great war movies, some great Navy movies out there. And it was good to see Greyhound continue in that tradition. It's just a hard story to tell, right? Because, you know, most of the time you see the ships, not the people, and people are what gain emotions. And, and the reality of naval service is that most of what we do is out of sight and therefore out of mind of Canadians. And so we're trying to figure out better ways to tell, tell the story of the Navy and to expose Canadians to the incredible sailors that we have serving Canada uh, at sea. What is your favorite Navy movie? I have a soft spot for uh, The Cruel Sea. I think that's probably my favorite. Are, are, you, are you bummed that the Master and Commander movie didn't become, we have sequels for all the books? But it's just so hard to tell the stories of the sea because there's so much complexity to it that doesn't come, a well, come across well in the screen. And, you know, movies are all about creating a human connection, emotional connection. So I think that's going to be the challenge we face. And so that's why some of the best sub movies involve submarines where you see that human drama playing out under sea where you can imagine the threat because people can imagine and the claustrophobia that they might feel if they were down in a submarine and stuff like that. What's your favorite submarine movie? Das Boot. You know, that's one I haven't seen. I'm, I'm a big submarine oh. fan, but that, that's the one I just haven't seen yet. I, Probably the most accurate portrayal of what submarine service was like in the uh, Second World War. Just the incredible challenges of it. I mean, for the threat of the U-boats, by the end of the war, we well and truly won the, the Battle of the Atlantic to the point where 75% of German submariners were killed in the conflict. Yeah, uh, it's a pretty uh, dangerous way to operate. That was uh, the Amer I, I'm more familiar with the American submarine warfare effort. And I know they lost the American submarines lost more personnel as a percentage than I think anybody else in the, during World War II and the American side of things. Yeah, what's impressive, you know that, because one of the points I frequently make is that the most successful submarine campaign of the Second World War was in the Pacific, and the least successful anti-submarine uh, effort was that of the Japanese. One of the reasons why they ultimately, the outcome of the war was inevitable because of the success of the Allied submarine campaign against Japan. Imagine if the American submarine torpedoes had worked. I know, and that's the amazing thing, right? So the most successful submarine of the war sank itself with its own torpedo, which yeah. is a reminder for us these days that, you know, the the number of times we have problems with ammunition in conflict means that we need to be training today with all of the ammunition that we intend to use in wartime in the manner in which we use it. And our exercises have to be robust and really proving that we are as good as we think we are. So that's another thing that we brought to the Navy is this. Our goal is to blow up the target on the first shot every time. And we work really hard towards uh, that end. Well, I wish you luck in that effort. And I, I hope that you guys can get the ammunition you need because I know that's a real challenge these days. The Ukraine war has taught us that that we expend the stuff much faster than we, we had 
guessed in our pre-war estimates. Yeah, and we we told ourselves great things about uh, just-in-time supply chains and the ability <laughs> to turn things on in a dime, and and that's not the reality, right? You have it or you don't have it when uh, when a war starts. And so, yeah, and I think we're we're working really hard to make sure we understand and apply the lessons that we see from Ukraine. The other big one is one that you know is a consistent message to all of the sailors: innovation is at the grassroots level a lot of times, and so we need mm-hmm. to make sure sailors who have the most invested in the ship's effectiveness in combat have the opportunity to make that ship as combat effective as possible by so that we're listening to the innovation that they've got, making sure that it, it is validating where they have a good idea, that it is really a good idea, that this is something we can do, and then how do we implement it as quickly as possible? And so we're really trying to get that rapid innovation mindset across the Navy as well. And if you do that, it doesn't only help you in wartime, it also helps to keep those folks in the military because they've seen that they've made a difference. That's exactly it, right? So in uh, the whole message these days is let's encourage people to, to solve their own problems and empower them to get to those solutions. Excellent. Thanks again for your time, Admiral. I imagine I'll be bumping into your daughter again as she's becoming one of the mainstays of, of Canadian Defense Security's next generation. Is Amy your oldest or your youngest? She's our, my oldest, and it really has given me some insight into the, the great work that's being done to build a you know just a network of people who are interested in security and defense in Canada. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing, part of that defense and security network, to really build interest and build the skill sets of people who want to work in security and defense. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, thanks again for your time, and good luck the rest of your your tour as as head of this Navy. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.